0: Welcome to Freedom Not Control with host Justin Melanson. Every day we hear about freedom being taken away from us and it affects us more and more. From basic privacy to deep technology. How does it affect you and what can you do about it? On today's show, we'll discuss what's being done now and what's coming soon so that you can take back control of your freedom. Now, here is Justin Melanson.
1: I don't know about you, but for several months now, I've pretty much given up on posting anything personal on social media when they started doing things like removing the president's posts or censoring anything that was against the politics of the social media sites. You know, even some of the major brands have pulled back from doing any type of advertising on a few of these platforms, and you know which ones I'm talking about. If you and your friends are hashtag deleting, you got an option now where we can all get back together, and it's called Life Loop. It's okay if this is the first time you're hearing about it because it's brand new. That's L-Y-F-E-L-O-O-P. It's going to look a whole lot like the other social media sites that you're familiar with. The difference is LifeLoop is never going to censor opinions. They're never going to censor free speech. They'll actually have more features than some of the old platforms you used to use. Better ways to share photos, easier ways to like or dislike something without repercussion, and better security. They're not selling your data. You've lost trust in the other platforms. Allow LifeLoop to earn your trust. Check them out today. Beginning now, you can download LifeLoop for free in the Apple App Store and at Google Play. Or if you're working on your laptop or your iPad right now, you can check them out online and sign up free there as well at LifeLoop.com. That's Life with a Y. -Y L-Y-F-E Loop. And I will see you there.
2: And today, my guest is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, MD, is a natural healing consultant and mentor, public speaker, forensic psychiatrist, and expert witness. He completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina, where I currently live. And he has a BS from MIT in molecular biology. He has conducted and published original research and lectured, supervised and mentored medical students, residents and fellows in all psychiatric specialties. He, he has qualified as an expert witness in local, state and federal courts. Dr. Kaufman has also held leadership positions in academic medicine and professional organizations. He has run a startup company which develops medical device he invented and patented. And he graduated from the Medical University of South Carolina, the Doctor of Medicine, and Massachusetts MIT, which is Massachusetts Institute of Technology, with a BS in biology. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. How are you doing today, sir?
3: Thank you so much uh, for inviting me on, Justin.
2: I'm happy to have you, And, and you were a guest that I was looking forward to having on um, during the beginning of this pandemic, which I call the plan here, here, um, I was reassured by you first. You were the first doctor that i seen that had come forward um, and essentially put your job on the line and risked everything by telling the truth. Since, ne- since then, now we are... So many months in, there has been thousands uh, of doctors that have came forward and confirmed what you said and and are speaking speaking out, which is great. But uh, you always ring a bell because you went right through it. I have your videos up on my site. I've showed and shared with people that I've known and spoke the truth. And the thing about me is, I like I'm just pretty much cut and dry. I want to see the facts. And you know, once you proved it to me, and showed that the virus hasn't been purified, and now that is confirmed from the FDA website with the CDC. I've shown everybody where it is on the paragraph. They confirmed that it has been purified. That's it, you know?
3: No, this is not a new thing. No, 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 no. So, Justin, um, you know, you remind me of uh, this mentor that I used to have uh, named Hank, because uh, I was trying to start up like a technology company at one point um, that was meant to actually prevent suicide uh, among uh, people in jail because it's a really rough time and there's very high suicide rates there. But um, but during that um, experience, having this uh, like business mentor, um, Hank, he always said whenever we sat down to a meeting or to discuss a topic, he said, first, we have to figure out which things are things, right? And that sounded very much like a simpleton uh, expression when I first heard it. But over time, the significant, the significance of it became uh, more tangible. And, and it became the central question always, right? Because that was a contents context that was in the unknown. Like we're making a brand new type of product and technology that hasn't been used before. And so there's so many variables. We have to say what things are things to start each conversation. And the same thing is true in this situation because – here we have things that have never been done before that are totally new, right? And we saw this uh, first play out in China and that's when I first took notice. And then in that interim, I was traveling around a little and I started seeing people on airplanes with masks. And so I knew something was weird because I'd never seen this before. (laughs) Right, right? And so, so that means, okay, the first thought I had was I gotta figure out what things are things here. And there's this rumor of a virus. So is it really a thing or not? And, and that, that's the exact essence of the problem, right? And I really respect your um, approach to this that say, okay, let's see what the facts are. And then let's see, do the conclusions that were told by the authorities match the facts? Um, and that's the very, very key question. And what I found is that they never actually showed a thing like a thing that's a virus. They never said, look, here it is. We have it all by itself, right? Here's the thing. It's the virus. Mm -hmm. They've never shown that. So what are we talking about here? We're we're just talking about rumors, not actually things.
2: Right. And I want to ask you, and obviously I've seen everything, and and I know this, but I'm going to pretend um, for the listeners and viewers that I don't know this. So we're going to go through a couple of key points here. And the main key point is, they never purified a virus or isolated a so-called virus. Is that true? And explain how that is.
3: Yeah, well, uh, that is definitely true by the conventional meanings of those words. Now, you will find these scientists who publish papers and, you know, these have been peer reviewed, which is it's really kind of a hard thing to look at. But if we take into context the famous article from PLOS um, uh, 1, written a few years ago by John Ioannidis, who's a professor at Stanford, very famous, world-famous guy, he he told us that more than half of all published research findings are false. So whenever we look at a scientific paper, we've got to remember that there's a greater than 50% chance that whatever the conclusions or results are of that paper, that they're false. So you always have to look through that lens. But here in this situation, it's really magnified because the scientists that do these virus isolation quote-unquote experiments, they make up a new definition of the word isolation. But when other people read the title of the paper, when it says, you know, isolation of a novel virus, you think that that means isolation, like meaning you separate it from other things and have it by yourself. But they don't do that at all. What isolation means to a virologist is mixing a body fluid of a sick person with a foreign cell culture, usually monkey cells that you starve and poison. And then that from that mixture together, you show that the cells are damaged and that is what they call isolation. Now, I don't know how they came up with that word exactly <laughs> to uh, apply to that meaning, but that is not showing what things are things. That's just showing a big mess, right? And, and it would stand to reason that if you just took dying or diseased tissue from someone who is sick and mixed it in a cell culture, what do you think would happen, mm-hmm. right? It would, it would, when tissue is dying and decaying, we know it creates toxins, right? Because that's what food poisoning is, right? You eat meat that's spoiled, well, that means the meat is rotting and breaking down because it's dead tissue and the microorganisms that eat the dead tissue they make waste and their waste is poison right just like our waste is poison you know you wouldn't want to go around eating feces so that's what happens when you have disease in your body to that local tissue so if you take that poisonous tissue and mix it with a cell culture of course it's going to damage the cell culture and that's why they need what's called a control experiment. So this is another huge, huge warning sign in this science that they don't do a control experiment. Now, this is kind of like experiments 101 that you would get like in your high school lab course, uh, which says, you know, always do a control so that you know that what you're measuring actually is the causing the effect that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. um and so they don't do this and you do that in a pretty simple way you just get a healthy person and get their tissue sample so if it's lung fluid you get some lung fluid from a healthy person mix it with the same exact cell culture with the same ingredients in other words the poison antibiotics the uh fetal calf serum and the starving culture medium like the it's basically bare minimum nutrients right so it's like if you were on a a, a starvation diet, like just bread and water, that kind of thing. So you do that with the lung fluid from the healthy person and show that, that those cells aren't damaged. Then, then you might prove something, not necessarily that there's a virus, but you'd, you'd prove something. Right, but they've right. never done that experiment.
2: Let me ask you this. Um, is it Kosh postulates, or is that how you pronounce it?
3: Uh, well, the the correct German pronunciation, I'm told, is Koch, Okay. Which is really hard to say. So most people say Koch. Like the Koch brothers. Yeah, like Coke. So that is That is uh, one of the main things that rung out, and that's been
2: done since, what, the 1800s? Is that when it
3: started? Uh, yeah, well, Robert Koch, uh, it was sometime in the you know late 1800s when he codified the postulates, but they were already talked about. He was just the one that kind of put them on paper in a formal uh, um, type of uh, way. Mm-hmm. But... Essentially, they're just common sense rules to show that a germ of any kind causes a disease. And they've been modified a little bit for viruses over the years because one of the conditions is that you take the germ out. Well, so always you have to basically take the germ out of a sick person and it shouldn't be there in healthy people. Right. So that way, you know, it's like only in the sick people, common sense. And you need to take it out to actually show that it's really there, and right? Because otherwise, how are you going to show it causes the disease if it's not even present? So, But then the second step for bacteria or fungus, fungi, would be to grow it in a pure culture. And, you know, that's not how things grow in nature. Like, there's no bacteria that you can go find in nature that's in a pure culture. It's always, like, many, many mixed together. Right. Um, you know, it's just kind of like in a city. You never find a city where there's only short people. Right. There's always people of different heights, mm-hmm. right? people of different cultures, people of different races, etc. cetera. So that's how microorganisms live in the world, too. They live all mixed together. So th- with this, since viruses, as they're um, theorized, can't reproduce on their own. They can't grow in a pure culture because they can't reproduce. Right, So that step has been kind of taken out for viruses, and, and it makes sense, mm-hmm. um, and I would agree with it. Uh, I would have no problem taking that step out based on the theory that viruses can, can reproduce when they're in a host cell, uh, although I don't think that that's not been proven. But nonetheless, it's reasonable. But then you're supposed to take out the germ that you took out of the – I mean, take the germ that you took out of the sick person and you're supposed to put it in a healthy host. Now, it could be another person, right? But that's considered unethical. But those experiments were done with the Spanish flu, actually, Mm -hmm. um, to some degree. Um, But So usually they use an animal. And then in the animal host, or whatever you put that germ in, it should cause the same disease. And that's essentially how you prove that a germ causes a disease. And this has been done for a long time, and this has kind
2: of become... What's called the gold standard, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, since uh, at least a hundred years ago, this has been the gold standard. And in fact, in Germany, their version of the CDC is named after Robert Koch. It's called the mm-hmm. Robert Koch Institute, or you'd see the RKI sometimes in the um, in an article is how it's referred to. So, oh, I'm sorry. So this is yeah, very um, significant. So the site shot Um, first back to that,
2: besides the not purification, that's kind of goes into that is they didn't perform not even one
3: of these steps. Right. That's exactly correct. You have to first take out the germ um, to show that it it is there, right? Because if you don't have the thing, how do you know that it exists even? Right. So first you have to take it out and show it's there, um, which they haven't done. And then you have to put it in a host and show that it causes the same disease. And essentially, then you've proved that the disease is caused by that germ. Um, but I'll tell you, so they've, there's a couple of things about this. So one is, some people say, well, Koch's postulates isn't relevant anymore because there's new signs, right? But the thing is, they still publish articles um, saying that the virus has satisfied Koch's postulates. So for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, right, the virus they say is associated with COVID-19, they've actually done at least two papers where they say that they've satisfied Koch's postulates. So so anyone that says it's not really relevant, I would say, well, why is Nature, one of the top, most prestigious journals in science, why are they publishing paper about Koch's postulates if it's not relevant? Right. But but the other thing is, and, and I have uh two um videos explaining this for different articles, they haven't actually satisfied Koch's postulates. Um in fact not even close. Like they failed it at every step and in some steps multiple ways. And so I outline that. And so this is kind of the I would say it's actually fraudulent research that gets published because if, if you read it carefully, it's obvious that they um, basically stretch the truth into in a fraudulent way in multiple in basically every argument they made in the paper.
2: I agree. I've uh, seen the video, sir. I don't mean to cut you off. I'm gonna, no, no, that's quite all right. Um, I'm going to ask um, again for people that uh, don't know or haven't heard. The second question is everybody asks, well then what were all with all these people getting going to the hospital and and what happened to all these people? Um, I know the answer to that, and, and I'm sure it doesn't take a... There's one thing that I saw, too, uh, at the beginning when I from you. You know, you looked at the total death total, and I think it was back in March, and it really hadn't risen at all. That was another thing you went on about. If there's some kind of new thing going on here, then we would see yeah. something going up here. Um, now we That's see they've it. been running off of these cases with a test that doesn't test for the virus, and we'll get into that in a little bit um, with you, but...
3: Can you explain to them what's all this? What's going on here? Um, yeah, Justin, um, absolutely. And because this is one of the most like difficult things to wrap your head around uh, with this. I mean, I know some people, you know, don't even want to talk about the the virus issue because it's too hard to kind of question the existence of a of a virus. But looking at this is really important. But I want to just highlight like a, a principle of reasoning and of logic because. Um, This is one that I think uh, people make mistakes about quite a bit. So the thing is, if you propose a theory, then in order for that theory to, to be valid, you have to provide evidence to support it. If you don't provide any evidence, then you don't need another theory to disprove it. You don't need to disprove it at all. You can just toss it right out because it's a theory with no evidence. So that just means it's an idea. And you know that someone has an idea, maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but you don't have to take it seriously until they do something about it, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we have this situation here um, where there's really no evidence that a virus is causing anyone to die. And you don't need to necessarily have another explanation for why some people might have died in order to disprove that, you got to take that at face value. Okay, so where's the evidence? Like, where's the autopsies that show unique findings? Or where are all the dead bodies where they show pictures of the virus destroying the cells in the people's body? For example, like that would be, you know, like direct evidence of a virus killing people. But we, we don't have that. So we can kind of throw that out and then say, okay, well, did anybody actually die beyond normal? Uh, or not? And you have like a big mystery here and you've got to do some real detective work to figure it out because nobody in the mainstream is presenting it this way. They're just kind of copying the story that, Oh, all these people are dying from a virus. And then they give estimates. And a lot of it is estimates. They give inaccurate death figures because as it's been widely reported, they've been told to fill out death certificates in such a way to label every death as uh, COVID-19 which is why the flu has practically disappeared. Right. Even Deborah Burke said we no longer have the flu. Yeah. Right. And, and I quote, uh, so they've relabeled a lot of other deaths, but so that's why you have to look at the overall death rate and say, is it different? So now here's the really interesting thing. So let's say that we thought this was, uh, like we're going to say, is this really a virus that killed a bunch of people? Does it look like that in terms of the statistics? So a couple of things would happen, like, because we have lots of data for seasonal viruses and what happens, because every year we have the flu and we have colds. And then we've had, you know, these other epidemics like SARS and swine flu that we have data on. So we can show like the normal progression. And what you see is a kind of a gradual rise in deaths uh, to a peak and then a drop off that's gradual. And it happens over about... 12 to 16 weeks generally speaking a little bit longer typical flu season and what we see is that anywhere there are flu cases or other virus cases you have deaths and it's pretty consistent all over because you know if it's caused by the virus the virus is causing you to die then if it causes you to die in Los Angeles it would also cause you to die in Chicago and also in New York and also in Buenos Aires and Right. Pretty much anywhere because we're saying it's the virus is causing it. Now, maybe an old people, they're more likely to die. But then the old people in New York and Chicago and, and L.A. will be more likely to die. Right. The same. Right. Exactly. OK, so that's I, I, one thing. I saw
2: something the other a couple of weeks ago, I think it was on Tucker Carlson, where he showed it was when they came out with the death toll and the people people that he said he said it was 78 years old was the average death and then somebody told me i didn't confirm this after that that the average death told now is 82 but i'm not sure about that but either way he, he pretty much confirmed on mainstream tv um he's probably one of the last mainstream news people that i actually believe does okay. the truth said that well it's just dangerous to be old either way um
3: yeah well of course because you know i mean we know that when you get old, you're gonna die sometime and that's when it happens. And of course, but that pattern is the same as with the flu. Like you see, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really kill any children and and it kills really older adults or younger adults that are sick. And so same thing, you know, so that's consistent with a virus, but what's not consistent is that it has a different effect in different places. And then, then there's also another thing, like if it was a contagious thing, it would have to be basically, you know, and it started in China. So then people from China would have to go other places and then it would take hold in one place and then spread to the next place. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you would see the timing would be different in different places. There'd be a delay, but what we saw is the same timing worldwide. So what we saw were hotspots. If you look at all the data, you'd see that there was a spike in deaths But it didn't follow that gradual seasonal pattern. It instead was a sharp rise right after the World Health Organization announcement of a pandemic status and the crazy predictions about like 2 million people in the United States dying. Mm -hmm. And it was right after that, it suddenly went up really, really quickly. Within days, it reached the peak. Um, And then it slowly dropped off after that and lasted um, about eight weeks or so. And, and pretty much anywhere. But what you saw is so, like in the United States, and there were hot spots like New York, where there was a huge increase in deaths over that period. But then you had California, which had the same rates of cases, like basically positive tests and hospitalizations, but had no increased death at all. So, how is that possible? Well, the thing is, they treated people differently in the states. So, in New York, they sent all the older patients that went to the hospital to nursing homes where they couldn't treat acute patients. And so they basically were neglected and died in huge numbers. Right. Okay. But they died because of medical neglect, not because of a disease. Right. The hospitals right. were actually empty during yes. this time. Okay. Oh, so God. that's another thing. How could hospitals be empty? when we're having a health crisis, doesn't make any sense at all. So, so then you had the other thing that was different in New York is that they had this ventilator party where they basically rushed everyone on a ventilator. They didn't use any conservative treatment, like any of the hydroxychloroquine and zinc or Zithromax that they used in other States, like in Florida, where they had almost, they had no deaths in Florida either. And they used that protocol there. They didn't put people on the ventilator there unless they were about to die. In New York, they put people who are conscious and walking around talking on ventilators instead of just giving them oxygen. And almost 90% of people on ventilators, according to the biggest study in New York, died. So basically, you had something like 77% of all deaths in New York were in either hospitals or nursing homes. So that's basically why people died because they got this medical treatment that was killing them or lack or lack of medical treatment because they suddenly changed the policies. So, and, and in other places, there were different things like in uh, Europe, there's an article that recently came out by Torsten Engelbrecht and uh, Klaus Kohnlein where they talked about there's using high doses of toxic antiviral drugs. And that those were correlated with deaths. And like even hydroxychloroquine, which has been reported to be very successful, it has a very narrow, narrow effective dose. If you go dose too high, it becomes toxic. And they were giving really high doses in these protocols. So they're basically giving high doses of immunosuppressive drugs, toxic chemotherapy-like drugs that are antivirals. And plus high doses of hydroxychloroquine. So it may be that in some areas where there were these spikes of death, that that they were from different reasons. So they could have been ventilator and the nursing home thing in one place. And it could have been uh, experimental regimens of toxic drugs in another place that basically uh, killed people. And so this is what you saw. But those numbers were not very big. Right. Um, But they still were. That spike that was in excess and that's significant. But since that since that ended, which was in uh, May, there's been no excess deaths anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's when we've seen them switch the cases and, and push hard on cases. Exactly. Ever so since, so they it? have no, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just testing. It's right. just test results. They can um, they can basically calibrate the test to guarantee a certain number of positive results. And depending on how many positive results they want to drive whatever policy they want, they just te- set the test up like that, do right. it on a bunch of people, and show a certain number of cases and then say, all right, it's lockdown time. Right. So let's get into the test, uh, the test, Carrie Mullis, the, P- the RCPCR test.
2: Um, let's get into that. I'll let you take the wheel on that one and
3: explain how that test is invalid here well you know um there's so many aspects that really uh show you that this test is not appropriate to be used in this context and some of these are very very straightforward and some of them we could get into you know some more science but you're right the inventor uh carrie carrie mullis who won the nobel prize and and really unfortunately only died last August so right yeah, before all he this shockingly uh, died right yes,
2: before so it has happened and um, and I remember seeing a couple of videos from him he wasn't very fond of fauci he, I, no. I kind of like the guy I think he would this wouldn't be happening if he was alive actually
3: <laughs> he, he was um I mean if he were alive now he he would be very important um, in exposing the truth about this mm-hmm But he basically has described this test for what it is, which is it's a way to make something out of something. So in other words, you have a tiny amount of something and you wanna make more of it, this is the right um, procedure, polymerase chain reaction. Notice it's not called a test because it's not used as a test, it's a research and manufacturing tool. Mm -hmm. So it's really made to manufacture um, DNA sequences or RNA sequences. Because you, if you can start with one copy that you you know make by adding one base at a time, which is a long and laborious process, and then you plug it in there, and you can have billions and trillions and quadrillions of copies of that in hours. So it's imagine if you know you were manufacturing paper clips. So the first paper clip, you carefully take the wire and bend it by hand until it's just the right shape. Right. Then you put it in the machine, and a few hours later, you get 10 million paper clips that are identical. Like, that would be a great manufacturing tool, wouldn't it? Yes. Right. Like, basically, we could make whatever we want at home. (laughs) Right. There was
2: (laughs) one key thing that I heard from his mouth in one of the videos that Carrie Mullis said. He said, This test does not tell you if you're sick. And that's
3: one key word that he said, word for word, out of his mouth. So, so the test actually doesn't measure anything, mm-hmm. right? So it, it simply, uh, it amplifies the sequences of RNA. So um, depending on what this RNA is, you're just basically showing that it's present. But the thing is that if you, um, the way this test works is like, it makes more of something, right? So what it actually does is each round that you do it, you do it in rounds, you know, just like poker hands, right? Amplification. Yeah. And each time it doubles it. Mm-hmm. So you see, like, as you keep doubling it and doubling it, the numbers get ridiculously high at mm-hmm. some point. And when it, the numbers get ridiculously high, you, you basically get a, a false signal, a noise. It's like, you know, when you turn your uh, speaker up really loud, you start to hear hissing. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the noise, and it's not there on purpose, but technology always captures noise. And it's the same thing with this test. It captures the noise. And so basically, if you do enough cycles, you can show anything's there. You can make up something from scratch and show that it's there on the test because it's basically 100% positive. It'll make stuff up. Um, they say it's replication incompetent. Right. right, it means it can't copy things accurately, so it just shows everything is being there.
2: Right, is it true that you know we all have stuff in our body? Obviously, from when we're young and babies, we put stuff in our mouths, so our immune system builds up, we've got germs. Uh, once, I once just heard recently like the human mouth is like one of the most dirtiest mouths, second to like uh, I forgot what it was, maybe a Komodo dragon or something, but it's, <laughs> it's a very germ filled
3: mouth. We, um, we are, uh yeah, we're filled with tons of stuff. I mean, right. we're not we're not one one thing. Like we, you know, we're only one tenth human cells. Mm-hmm. We we have about ten times as many microorganisms that make up our body mm-hmm. than human cells. You know, so what really are we? We're we're this complicated mixture. Mm-hmm. And with this test, um, like what's it measuring? It's measuring just a short sequence of RNA that we've shown you can measure it out of a piece of fruit. Um there are people in the UK that have recently sent in uh samples of rainwater. Wow. Um and one person actually just took the swab out of the package and then put it right back in. Didn't swab anything and got a letter back that he was positive. Wow. So the thing is, it's not really testing for anything. If you if you um really think that even if it really shows that this sequence of RNA is present, well, what does that mean? Because that hasn't been shown to be anything because they didn't take that sequence out of a thing. They took it out of a person without purifying it. Right. So how do we know what it is? Right. Um, And then they're testing it. So, so because of that, right, it doesn't show a virus or, even something that's correlated with a virus from an experiment. So you, you don't know what the accuracy of it is, right? Cause there's nothing to compare it to. Like if you wanted to make a pregnancy test, you would compare it to a baby coming out of the woman after nine months, right? Because if that baby doesn't come out, she wasn't pregnant. You know, 100% certainty, right? Cause that, that so they call that a gold standard. So, so let's say you take a test where you um, have a pendulum over the woman's belly, right? And if it goes uh, east-west, she's pregnant, and north-south, she's not pregnant. So you do that, and then you wait to the nine months, and you say, does it match up? And if it matches up 50% of the time, you can say the error rate is 50%, right? And then now you have a real test because you have an error rate. So you know how to interpret the test results. And that's how every medical test uh, would be validated to even just show that it's a valid thing. And if you were going to get FDA approval, you'd have to go beyond that, actually. Right. Um, So none of these tests have FDA approval and none of them have been validated in any way. So we don't know what the error rate is. So how can you rely on a test and drive policy from a test that you don't even know what it's measuring or what the error rate is. Right. And we've seen even the mainstream uh, fake
2: news say, like, uh, for example, the New York Times or, or somebody and others say
3: 90% false positive. They're even telling you that, um, you know. Well, I, you know, do you know what the false positive means? Because that's a confusing term. Two, a lot of people think it means, so let's say if 100 people test positive, that 90 of those are false. But that's not what it means. What it means if we have, um, let's say, a 1,000 people, and not from a test, but actually only 100 of the 1,000 actually have a disease or sick. So that means that there's 900 that are not sick, right? They're healthy, Mm -hmm. 90% of that number has a positive test. So 90% of 900 which would be 810 would have a positive test but be healthy. That's Agreed. what a 90% false positive rate. So you'd have basically 100 people who are sick plus 810 who are healthy. That's 910 out of 1000 would have a positive test. Right. And it would
2: and it's basically um, not, you know, whatever this percentage is, is just basically has this DNA or whatever it is that they're going.
3: No, it just, it, it doesn't mean it has anything in it because if the amplification is too high, then it, so actually Tony Fauci was just interviewed last week and he said this. Now he used some fancy scientific jargon to say this, but basically what he said is if you do any more than 35 cycles, of amplification, you know, 35 doublings, Mm -hmm. then any result you get doesn't match up with reality. So it's meaningless. It's just junk. Um, It doesn't show a virus. And yet when we see what the health departments are doing, like in England, for example, they're using 45 cycles. Wow. So that's 10 additional doublings beyond what shows junk. So that means that 100% of their results are junk. Is there any way to tell um, Dr. Kolfman where in our local areas or look up uh, how many cycles they use? Yes. So um, it may be published on the health department's website for your state. But it may not, and what I suggest that you do if you want to know this, and by the way, if anyone does this, please uh, report what you find to me because I'd love to collect a database of all these uh, protocols from place to place. Um, But what I would do is I would look up your county health department's office and I would call them um, and ask them in your county how many cycles or what is the cycle threshold. This is the language that they use for the PCR test that they're using for the public. And, you know, in general, by the way, like if you look at what scientists would generally say, they would usually say that 25 is when you hit 25 cycles, you start to get suspicious that you actually have a real result. Mm -hmm. And almost all would agree 30 is absolute cutoff. Dr. Fauci said 35, so you see there's still not 100% agreement, but nonetheless, so Fauci says 35, so anything above that, and I've heard many health departments in different countries and states in the United States using 40 or 45 cycles, and so that means that the results, you know, even more meaningless, because it's meaningless in the first place because there's no gold standard comparison. There's also no studies that correlate it to actually being sick because, you know, what what's going on right now with all the testing results and the reported cases is almost all those people are healthy. They're not sick at all. So, you know, we're talking about um, getting a test in a person that's healthy. Like normally we don't do this. You know, I mean, there's there's very few things like why
2: would I get a test?
3: Right. Um, I mean, HIV is the other thing that people would do this for. Right. Or maybe hepatitis C. And those things are also imaginary. (laughs) Right. I I totally agree. This is great stuff.
2: We're going to go to a quick commercial break and we're going to be right back with Dr. Kaufman in just a few minutes here.
1: I don't know about you, but for several months now, I've pretty much given up on posting anything personal on social media when they started doing things like removing the president's posts or censoring anything that was against the politics of the social media sites. You know, even some of the major brands have pulled back from doing any type of advertising on a few of these platforms. And you know which ones I'm talking about. If you and your friends are hashtag deleting, you got an option now where we can all get back together. And it's called Life Loop. It's okay if this is the first time you're hearing about it because it's brand new. That's L-Y-F-E-L-O-O-P. It's going to look a whole lot like the other social media sites that you're familiar with. The difference is LifeLoop is never going to censor opinions. They're never going to censor free speech. They'll actually have more features than some of the old platforms you used to use. Better ways to share photos. Easier ways to like or dislike something without repercussion. And better security. They're not selling your data. You've lost trust in the other platforms. Allow LifeLoop to earn your trust. Check them out today. Beginning now, you can download LifeLoop for free in the Apple App Store and at Google Play. Or if you're working on your laptop or your iPad right now, you can check them out online and sign up free there as well at LifeLoop.com. That's Life with a Y. -Y L-Y-F-E, Loop. And I will see you there.
2: All right, and we're back speaking with Dr. Kaufman on Freedom Not Control. You can catch him and look him up. His website is andrewkaufmanmd.com. The link is in the description. And, Mr. Kaufman, we're just going over, uh, right before this, we were going over the RC-PCR test. Now, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, There is a new test, if I'm not mistaken, like an instant or a faster test, I believe. I'm not too familiar with that. Are you familiar with what what
3: they're using, or is that something branched off of the RFC-PCR test? Yeah, no, um, you're talking about a different type of test. Um, The the PCR test takes hours to run because you have to do all those cycles, and each one takes a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, a super fast test, although there are some protocols to expedite it. But we're talking about different kinds of tests here. There, there are really two forms. There's what they call antibody tests, and then there's antigen tests. Now, the I want to say that there's something in common about all of the tests, and, and this is that none of them have been approved by any agency. So they're not FDA approved, and they're not approved by any agency in Canada or Europe or Australia either the only reason that they're allowed to be used legally is because they have something called emergency use authorization. Right. Okay. What that means is there's an emergency, right? Like this fake pandemic. And as a result of that, they don't need to do the testing and show that these things actually work because it's, it's too important that we need something right away. Okay. But if you look at the deaths, you'd see that it's not an emergency, so there's really no excuse to continue to use these tests. At this point, there's enough time that they should have had some validity data, okay? But there's been no science that would allow that, so they haven't done that. But So they're allowed to um, use these tests without showing that they're actually valid and real tests and that they measure what they say. So the FDA puts out a guidance on this that, you know, almost nobody looks at, uh, but it's right there for all to see. And what it says in there, and there's one for each different type of test, and it names some specific manufacturers and specific tests. It says in there pretty much in clear language that the tests have not been shown to be accurate to make a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yet that's exactly how they're being used. And was so, were you about the link on the FDA website, um, the one
2: uh, from the CDC? Um, I believe it's page 19 on the PDF, bottom paragraph, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, no,
3: I don't. <laughs> okay. it's, uh, it was referenced okay. on quite a few. Um, Are you talking about the CDC article that talks about no isolates were available? Yes. 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 Now, I can explain that uh, to mm-hmm. you in a moment, but. Well, it may be referenced there. I don't know. But I, I went on the FDA website directly to find this. And it basically, if you just search FDA guidance, COVID PCR test or COVID antibody test or COVID antigen test, you should find it pretty easily. And it's like a PDF document. Um, you can download it um, and read it. And it's, in, it's not in scientific language. It's in somewhat lay language. So it, you can definitely understand it um, without any scientific training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it says that but there's other things you could do too you can just look at the package labeling on the test itself like if you google like Roche uh, you know COVID PCR test for example you'll find the box images of the box and you can read what it says there and it says right on there that it measures SARS-CoV-2 RNA right so RNA from the virus not a virus and it says on there it should not be used to make a clinical diagnosis, <laughs> right? So yet yeah, that's how it's being used and it's being used in people that don't even have symptoms of anything who are totally healthy, right? So it's completely you know, uh, meaningless in terms of, do you have a disease or a virus? It's extremely meaningful because it's being used to create lockdowns and mask mandates and other, I mean, in some European countries, they have made it illegal to sing
2: yeah, I've seen the the terrible stuff in Australia, and uh, you know, you know, yes, somewhat. I think at one point, what four cases? Uh, they locked the whole thing down. Um, absolute tyranny. And that's what I was going to get into and finish this off with. You know, what do you believe? I know what I believe, and everybody that follows me knows uh, what I believe. What do you believe the reasoning is behind this? Since there is no virus here with these stringent, method, yeah. met, everything that's coming out?
3: Well, I, I don't actually don't think it requires uh, any belief because there are many, many documents that essentially describe uh, what the purpose of this is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think perhaps the big umbrella document that you could look at uh, would be the United Nations Agenda 2030. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you know, there's this, uh, globalist agenda that has been uh, promoted by all of these international organizations, uh, set, you know, umbrella uh, partly by the UN, but other, you know, things like the uh, Council on Foreign Relations and the Bilderberg Group, all of those uh, groups, the Trilateral Commission, but also um, by our own government. There are many, many laws in local areas that are basically written directly out of this plan that have been enacted over the past several years. And then you have these other groups that have written extensively about this plan, uh, like the World Economic Forum um, and the Rockefeller Institute. And so if you look at various documents from those organizations and then combine them with various government documents, like Boris Johnson's Operation Moonshot, which was uh, uh, published in the British Medical Journal. I saw the video on that, yes. Right. So you see that um, everything that's been going on uh, during this pandemic fits with all these plans. So like the reason for the economic shutdown, for example, like wow. that's
2: COVID-19, the great
3: right. Exactly. I mean, that, that has never happened before, you know, even during the, the 1918 flu pandemic. So, you know, just shut down everybody's business. Normally it would be like, okay, if you're a business owner and you feel that you're a danger, then you decide if you want to keep open or not, but to purposely have the government shut down the entire economy and shift basically all of the consumer uh, business from small, you know, single owner mom and pop Main Street businesses to big box and online mega corporations, right? And uh, you can see this is outlined in those plans, and part of it is to make people dependent on a government for income, like the idea of universal basic income. And you can see that the steps to bring that about are already in motion. Uh, and the pandemic has basically just been an excuse to change all these policies in every aspect of society. And it's been written about by many, many leaders that you know never uh, waste a good crisis Um, basically because when everyone is in fear and panic, that's when you can do all sorts of things in the name of addressing that crisis when really they're part of a bigger, totally different agenda. And that's why those documents are so important because you can look at the current policies and then realize, oh, they don't match up with the health situation. What do they match up with? And then go look at these planning documents and say, wow, they match up perfectly with this. And then you start to create a picture of what's going on, and you see that everything has been planned and it's in motion, and you can see what all the, the moving pieces are. And it's really just the, the little details from time to time that sometimes are unpredictable, but you see the overall pattern, So, which means essentially more and more control and surveillance of our society, less and less economic opportunity and freedom.
2: So let me ask you this um, before we wrap up, Dr. Coleman, what do you, how do you see this playing out um, with the medical industry first, um, as far as doctors and you know different hospitals? What's the best case scenario here? Obviously, I believe is the people, uh, the majority, the ninety-nine percent stands up and says we're done with this. Um, and if that happens, best case scenario, what would that how would that entail? And then I'd like you to give, uh, you know, what could be
3: maybe the worst case scenario, you know, Yeah, and the other way if we don't see enough. Right. Well, you know, certainly I can't uh, predict the future. Right. Um, there are things, though, that have been divulged, right? A lot of plans that have been written about directly, like there have been Things in Canada, there was a leaked email, and then there was uh, various government documents like requests for information that backed up various claims. And then, like I mentioned, there were, was Operation Moonshot that was leaked and published in the British Medical Journal. So if you look at those kind of things, because they make short-term predictions over the next couple uh, year or two, and what they all say is coming is that there are going to be stricter, more strict not lockdowns coming – Right? And we've already seen this starting to happen in Europe, so it fits with the written plan, and that there will be an expansion of testing. Um, in some places, test every single person every week in the entire country. And that this information will be used to create some kind of, uh, in, in the UK, they call it a digital passport. So maybe it's a cell phone app, or maybe some people even get an implantable chip. Uh, because there's technology that's been recently developed for that. And it will have your health status. So what your most recent test is, if you've ever tested positive, and then ultimately it will give your vaccine status. And then that will be used to control your access to various aspects of living. So like uh, whether you can go to work, whether you can travel, whether you can attend venues, uh, whether you can attend medical appointments. And this has all been clearly delineated in Boris Johnson's plan, but in others, uh, many, many different entities and governments have talked about these kinds of things. So essentially, it's kind of like a medical technocracy where that you'll be um, scrutinized and surveilled in terms of your health status, and that will probably grow beyond just COVID, and then you'll only be granted access to privileges, which essentially means living, Right, um, based on your your compliance with those health uh, monitoring and prevention recommendations, which will be, you know, take submitting to tests, submitting to vaccines and other treatments uh, whenever they uh, tell you. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know clearly where they're telling us they want things to go. So if just a threshold of people refuse these things. Um, outright then you know really the the government can't overcome what,
2: people what about the medical industry uh other doctors like you i know uh a lot of came forward but you know there's still some that haven't and what is your opinion you can't predict that on that but what do you feel you know knowing what you know of doctors do you feel more and more are going to come forward
3: and actually speak the truth Um, Justin, I think we can look at it I haven't really thought about it this way before But it just occurred to me Why not look at a historical example That's even more extreme Or that we think is more extreme Because there are a lot of parallels Between what's going on In our changing society right now And what happened in Germany Before the Nazis completely came into power Mm -hmm. And the healthcare establishment Was really critical in the Nazis' plan as well, because the way that they started getting rid of the population was through medical uh, service. Like They would basically take um, children who were um, developmentally delayed or handicapped in some way and basically take them to the hospital, and the doctors would do experiments on them. And they gave the doctors power to decide which child should be in which experiment, which child should just be euthanized. And they essentially, you know, abused and tortured and killed these children, right? And the doctors that were already working in the hospitals, previously, they took took on this work. So they didn't, you know, suddenly have a conscience and say, my God, we can't do this. This goes against our oath, right? Instead, they became basically agents for the state and carried out the torture and experiments now maybe some of them did leave and try to speak out but there was no major medical rebellion that i've ever read about so if we use that as an example i think we can see you know similarly now i mean the overwhelming majority of healthcare providers um whatever they're witnessing they're seeing empty hospitals for example and they're seeing um hospital procedures that don't make sense compared to their previous experience. And they're not all rebelling right now. So I don't think that's going to happen. You know, everyone who is under the spell that they trust the government and things like that, they don't really feel that there's any reason to be concerned about harm from the government. They see, you know, maybe they think, that the virus uh, mortality is a little bit overrated. And they're like, but they're also like being elevated to an important status. Like you see these billboards and signs up around the country, you know, that say, uh, you know, we need more heroes, or they use the word heroes, and they show people dressed up in medical garb. And, uh, you know, I don't have no idea why, you know, like that, that is clearly a public route relations propaganda type of campaign Mm -hmm. um and so maybe it's for the purpose of staving off a rebellion among healthcare providers
2: definitely is Uh, it's it's for that it's for uh part of their mainstream mockingbird media as well let's say control the people at the top of control the media they control the healthcare system as well right since rockefeller came through what was in the early 1900s and switched it from the natural made that now um you know, vitamins and regular things made that cut the unnorm and then put in right. big pharma as the norm. And if I'm not mistaken, what is it? The second leading cause of death is actually medical like um you know, malpractice, not malpractice, but like uh treatments or
3: yeah. So um yes, health care just treatment is at at a minimum the third leading cause of death in the United States. See, they haven't, nobody has really collected that statistic because the government does not want you to know that. Right. So, So, So you have to piece together the number from other separate studies and it's hard to, it's only an estimate. So it ranges based on how you calculate the estimate from the third leading cause of death to the number one leading cause of death.
2: Right. And just think about it. If everybody was, uh, you know, if everybody was better and 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 we didn't need to buy these pills and we didn't need to buy this medication, uh, these pharmaceutical companies, they're not going to be in business very long there. So. Uh, well, I'll
3: tell you like that because I, you know, was trained and practiced as an allopathic physician and uh, for, for years and saw thousands and thousands of patients that in that model. And, when once i realized that that was not effective and i found when you know i learned about those old natural ways um and learned about you know another theory of disease and see that when people use that method and it doesn't involve not a single pharmaceutical that people can heal themselves from virtually any ailment uh, even you know including Almost everything that regular healthcare says is incurable, that you'll be suffering for life from this. Um, people over and over again are able to completely heal and cure themselves of it mm-hmm. using just natural methods, not one pharmaceutical. So, yes, in if this knowledge were known widely, the drug industry would be out of business in no time. Right.
2: Definitely. With Dr. Kaufman, Um, going to go ahead and wrap it up. Get ready to wrap it up. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Again, check him out at MD.com. On Freedom Not Control, I'm also going to put up his full bio and some more links. I also have some videos that I'm going to put up to go into detail about the Operation Moonshot. And I'm going to get that article because I haven't seen it from him, the video. Is it a video from Pouchy that you were talking about? Yes. Yeah, it's an so interview. That we did. from you, the link to that. And I'll put that up on my site as well because I want to take a look at that for everybody to look at. But again, thank you, sir. And um, Dr. Kaufman, one of the first brave doctors to come forward, speak the truth, have a conscience, and uh, you know, not worry about any kind of repercussions. It was a pleasure having you on, sir. I hope to have you on again.
3: Thank you very much, Justin. It was great to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to Freedom, Not Control. Please join your host, Justin Malanson for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until the next show, we wish you a great week.